the Bunker Daily this is. Welcome you are. My name is Andrew Harrison and I have two things in common with Rishi Sunak. We both have to stand on tiptoes to reach the top shelf in the kitchen and we're both pretty into Star Wars. Or rather, Sunak is a lot more into George Lucas's universe of warring rebels, emperors and droids and the endless battle between the light and the dark side than I am. The Prime Minister collects lightsabers, once referred to Sajid Javid as his Jedi Master, surely Sith Lord, but we'll get to that later, and reputedly... He has read many of the countless spin-off books expanding the Star Wars universe. Even I don't go that far. One sniffy Tory MP told Tatler magazine most of his political philosophy comes out of the Star Wars trade wars that are about the independence of various kingdoms from the Empire. He's not someone intellectual. So is there real political relevance to the Star Wars universe? Or is it just basic escapism for overgrown child men like me and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland? Today, I'm joined by historian Dr. Chris Kempshall, author of The History and Politics of Star Wars, Death Stars and Democracy, out now in the Rutledge Studies in Modern History series. He's also a research fellow at the University of Exeter and a senior research fellow at the Centre for Army Leadership at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. So he knows a lot about war. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me along. Chris, are you seeing much Star Wars relevance in Sunak's career so far? I mean, he has spent a lot of time on the dark side. It hasn't immediately come shining through. I mean, it, it feels like one of those things with Rishi Sunak that, oh, I've heard that he's a fan of Star Wars, but at the same time, I've never actually seen it kind of, you know, manifest itself in, in you know, it's not like he's turning up in the House of Parliament dressed in like Darth Vader's armour or anything like that. Where you can go, <laughs> oh, I can see what you've done there. He's a little short for a stormtrooper. He is a little short for a stormtrooper, but more kind of, I don't, it doesn't radiate out from me as a kind of hearing him go, oh, no, there's a man who has thoroughly understood exactly what George Lucas was desperately reaching for um, and is now attempting to enact it in the real world. Yeah, you would hope he would at least drop, I find your lack of faith disturbing in PMQs or something like that. <laughs> I mean, the movies are, uh, you know, of, of the, the archetypal hero's journey from obscurity to power and responsibility, sometimes successfully, but at terrible personal cost, like Luke Skywalker or Rey, sometimes into the dark and back again, like Vader or Kylo Ren. When you see uh, Rishi Sunak's journey, are you saying any of that? Well, I mean, it very much depends on exactly what you're saying in his WhatsApp groups to the rest of the Tory uh, cabinet. Um, uh, not immediately. I mean, there's not really necessarily an element within the Star Wars kind of hero's journey that I'm familiar with that begins with multi-multi-millionaire decides to go on hero's journey. It generally tends to be starts from nothing and works their way up rather than starts from everything and goes sideways. <laughs> Maybe he will have his come to Yoda moment further down the line and um, it'll it'll all crystallise for us in a way that we didn't necessarily see coming. I don't know about come to Yoda moment. He did spend most of his time as Chancellor under Jabba the Hutt, so perhaps, you know, there'll be different parallels. <laughs> so the book... The History and Politics of Star Wars, Death Stars and Democracy. You focus on the political meaning of the, of the rival systems in the series, the Empire and the Rebels, which most listeners will be familiar with from the main films, but also the way they evolve in the books, probably the books that people haven't read, like mainly I haven't read either. Yes. Tell us about the sort of political meaning of those systems. Like the Empire in particular stands there as this embodiment, not just of evil, but of oppression and uniformity. You know, anybody who's watched Star Wars, it's it never, you know, particularly needs to be explained when you're watching Star Wars. Oh, oh, those guys in the armour and the uniforms who look a little bit Nazis are probably the bad guys. You know, it, it, it's designed purposefully to kind of transfer and transmit that information to you. George Lucas was trying to be or trying to make several kind of very distinct points about the Empire and the Rebel Alliance in the original trilogy and then with the kind of the, the, the Galactic Republic in, in the prequel trilogy. And at the heart of what he was basically reaching at was that 
the Vietnam War will turn America into a fascist state. In the original trilogy, the Galactic Empire is the United States of America. In the original kind of drafts for for New Hope, he refers to the empire explicitly as America 10 years after democracy has been overthrown. Um, And the Rebel Alliance are intended to be the Viet Cong. It's supposed to be a Vietnam War film in space and the bad guys are America and the good guys are the Vietnamese. It's created around the idea that overwhelming firepower, oppression, tyrannical government, seen largely through the lens as it would evolve to be of um, Richard Nixon, you know, a figure who will, you know, keep many of us awake at night wondering if he's, you know, hiding beneath the bed, is the greatest villain that humanity has ever seen. And interacting with conflicts like Vietnam, it will turn democracies into, into fascist entities. And the way to deal with them is for rebellion from below. Which is a pretty radical thing to say in the 1970s, to say that essentially the Viet Cong are the heroes. Particularly, yes. I mean, he comes from a generation of filmmakers that produced The Deer Hunter and yes. produced all those great sort of American examinations of the first time America really asked itself if it was right, if it was good. Yes. Well, before he's working on Star Wars, he's working on Apocalypse Now, which is stuck in development hell for years and years and years. And it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And it's always kind of wondering, are we ever going to get to shoot this film? And eventually he kind of hits upon the idea of, well, I'll just make my own Vietnam War film and I'll set it in space. And I'll tell a very similar story to what I, I was understanding of my of, of of the Vietnam War, my interaction with it. And we'll just set it in, we'll set it in the future or in the past, depending, you know, a long time ago, etc. He has some issues in that the audience don't get it entirely. Nobody is kind of walking out of Star Wars at the end of it going, wow, yeah, the Vietnam War is controversial. Um, I'll, I'll have to tell my parents, partly because the Vietnam War has ended. Well, I can remember when, when the, these films were coming out, I was doing my politics O-level. And I can remember my teacher saying, why do you all enjoy this terrible film, which is essentially making heroes <laughs> out of the Contras in Central America? Because they, you are asked to identify with these people uh, fighting jungle warfare the way he took it was that the the rebels were heroes because they were rebelling from the, the political right against a faceless Soviet-style empire, which is pretty yeah. much, you know, it is both similar and very different from what you're saying. Yes. And, and throughout the, the 70s and the 80s, Star Wars is constantly being repurposed in that way. You know, Ronald Reagan does his The Evil Empire speech about the Soviet Union and kind of reframes the Galactic Empire as, as the Soviet Union. You end up, because of the the nature of the Cold War playing along in the background, is that the assumption is, oh, the empire are, you know, Soviet, communistic, Stalinist, all kind of uniformity and, and, and the like. And therefore, the rebels are true freedom, democracy, the American way. But it's interesting because certainly in the first couple of films, it's never actually explained what the rebels what the end game is for them. What is it that they're actually trying to do? You know, what political system are they trying to create? You know, the idea, okay, we want to get rid of the empire and we want what exactly to to take its place. Which is, you know, interesting for a variety of ways because if we take it that, you know, the rebels are supposed to be the the Viet Cong, you know, you can say a lot of things about the Viet Cong. They were very clear on what it was that they wanted uh, politically to replace um, the situation (laughs) they had in Vietnam. It wasn't that they were entering this with, you know, like a big empty piece of paper with insert new system here written on it. You know, they had a very clearly defined ideology, but you don't necessarily get that. From the rebels, they are rebelling because the empire is evil, and the empire is evil because it's evil, and because it's evil, it has to be overthrown because they're evil, and whatever we replace it with will be good. In the early days of memes, you started to see a picture of Luke Skywalker with the caption, "A young desert boy is radicalized by an ancient religious fanatic yeah. into carrying out a terrorist attack on a government building, killing millions of people." So this is also yeah. could be seen through that lens as well. Yes, it absolutely can, and. 
when you get the prequel trilogy coming out, um, now obviously it starts coming out at the end of the 1990s and the final film, um, Revenge of the Sith, is released in 2005. So, you know, quite a lot has happened. But George Lucas then begins incorporating that into the prequel trilogy. You know, the rise of the, the man who would be Emperor um, uh, Palpatine is used to mirror or kind of reconsider aspects of George W. Bush. Overreaching of the Galactic Republic is used to kind of investigate elements of America post-Patriot Act and the Department of Homeland Security and the like. So he's constantly borrowing from the real world. At times in interviews, he'll he'll kind of demure away from it and say, oh, you know, I, I, I don't do that. I, you know, I, it wasn't a commentary, which is fine because, you know, it's absolutely fine for him to, to, to say that. It's just the issue comes when you watch the films and go, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe that you'd have stopped in the 1970s and go, you know what, I'm just never going to touch on real world politics again, despite this thing that's going on that's really similar in my own words to what happened in the 1970s. Well, for those people who haven't watched the prequels recently and let's be honest, why would you? They're not the best Star Wars artefacts in the world. In The Phantom Menace, we've got the Democratic Galactic Republic is on the verge of falling. The Senate yes. and the Chancellor are incompetent. Thousands of planets secede. It's not a very good advert for democracy, is it? it, it what he seems to be saying no. is democracy is weak and it will fail and it's full of untrustworthy, uh, pusillanimous people and a military takeover is going to happen very, very quickly and there'll be almost no resistance. And what does in pretty much... Queen Amidala's only line that's any good says, "This is how democracy dies." You know, in the votes yes. in the Senate. So, what is he saying? You could take that very much as a very right-wing, very anti-democratic point of view, couldn't you? Yeah, it's it's super weird because George Lucas goes on, you know, a varying lengths both in his kind of interviews and writings about the films and what it is he's trying to do about the you know the the sanctity and the fragility of democracy. He has one of the most cynical visions of it that you'll encounter yeah we live in reasonably cynical times uh when it comes to the you know the limitations of democracy but democracy in the star wars universe is rubbish it just doesn't work you never see any form of it that actually looks appealing it's always corrupt it's always bloated it's always perpetually on the verge of fascistic takeover now some of this is obviously for narrative purposes because no one's going to go out and watch a film or buy a bunch of books which the storyline is oh awful, terrible, scary thing is about to happen. But don't worry, the government leaps into action, forms a committee, deals with it really super, and they spend your tax money well. Although, to be fair, he thought kids would go and watch a film about a trade dispute. And the only kid who did go and watch it was Rishi Sunak. Took some very interesting lessons from it to heart. Some of it is is narrative, but you end up with a vision of democracy where no one's actually taking part in it. So that you, you, you quoted Queen Amidala from Revenge of the Sith. There's also a bit in it, in that film, where... Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi's having an, an argument with well, who is Anakin Skywalker, who has now become Darth Vader. And Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, um, you know, my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy. What democracy are you talking about? No one ever votes. When are the elections? Where's the, where are the people? Where's the citizenship? Where's the democracy? Is the Galactic Empire fascist as it's presented to us? It's got a lot of stormtroopers and a lot of stomping around, a whole lot of flags, doomsday weapons. To understand, before we even get into that, there's, there's an element of it becomes quite easy to look at what George Lucas is trying to say and what, you know, the authors and that are trying to say of Star Wars and go, oh, you know, they're not doing real history or they're not, they don't understand the politics. But to do that is to kind of make a mistake because George Lucas isn't pretending to be a historian or pretending to be a politician. He's dealing with kind of popular understandings, his popular understandings of it. But what you end up with in regards to fascism in Star Wars is the idea is that a fascist is something that you are rather than something that you do. So you are a fascist as an identity. 
rather than you do fascistic things. So it ends up being like a hat that you wear where you don't necessarily have to do anything fascistic to be a fascist. Fascist synonymous with bad guy. And it's something that often gets like kind of labelled with Darth Vader. As, oh, you know, Darth Vader is often referred to as basically being Adolf Hitler in space. But there are no real comparisons between Adolf Hitler and Darth Vader. Darth Vader doesn't appear to have any overarching ideology, which, you know, Adolf Hitler definitely did. Darth Vader is, is not charismatic. Adolf Hitler, you know, would motivate people with speeches and the like. And there's, there's any number of kind of elements of that fascistic action, you know, fascistic as a, as a doing thing that Darth Vader just doesn't do. And neither does necessarily anybody else, except for buy into this concept of the glory of the empire and the glory of the emperor. And that's probably where the tipping point is. One little thing that emerges constantly on these podcasts is because, unfortunately, we now find ourselves having to deal with fascism all the time, is that fascism is about acts. Fascism is about doing things. In fact, elevates the act above the rationale. Stop reasoning, just do stuff is the fascist thing. And it's very interesting what you're describing there, because I think, as you just said, you know, neither side, the rebels and the empire, they don't really have a program. They're not they're not standing on a platform. You know, with like a little manifesto that they've got and they're going door to door with it. Uh, there's no Darth Vader mind camp full of, full of his ideas. The bargain with fascism usually, though, is at least they made the buses run on time. These guys don't even make the spaceships run on time. Although it's really interesting when you see Andor, the fantastic series that's on at the moment, yes. Andor on Disney, for my money, the best Star Wars thing that's been out in ages. You actually do see that there are jobs and companies and corporations. There's a whole lot of admin of the, of the Empire in Andor, and it becomes quite fascinating, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying Andor and that element of the, the the way that the Empire is working, where basically they have outsourced tyranny to private companies who will do what the Empire wants them to do anyway, for fear of the Empire coming down and doing it themselves. And you end up with like a, a centre periphery model of the Empire, where you know, in the core worlds on Coruscant where Mon Mothma's doing, I imagine that if you're a nice middle class person living on Coruscant, the trains probably do run on time. The Empire probably doesn't interact with your day-to-day life on quite the level that it might do further out in the galaxy where, you know, you're being stamped in the face by a stormtrooper for all eternity, where that's where all of the the oppression or the visual oppression is taking place. Whereas in kind of the the administrative centres of the galaxy, it's more insidious in its own way. It's not necessarily soldiers on every street corner, but, you know, there are imperial signals on or symbols on every every building. You know, everybody probably knows people who work for the empire. You understand the rules of the empire, which is, you know, if you badmouth the emperor, they're probably going to kick your door in at three o'clock in the morning and, and, and drag you off. But if you obey the rules of the empire probably in the core world, you can go about your day-to-day life. And that's incredibly similar to any number of historical dictatorships, where if you understand what the rules are, the basic rules of the scenario or the situation that you are in, will have a profound impact on whether or not it appears that the regime is interacting or oppressing you on a day-to-day basis. What I love about Andor is that it's essentially the story of what it's like to be in the resistance against any political system. And it shows you that it's hard, it's dirty, it's terrifying. You will have to commit crimes. Sometimes you'll have to do things that approach war crimes. And it's of a parcel with Rogue One, which for my money is the best Star Wars film, where you see the, the unsung heroes who all you yeah. know, die 
pointlessly they think. Nobody gets a round of applause at the end. Everybody dies pointlessly. And the bigger picture puts the little people into sharp relief. What becomes interesting is that with with Andor and, and Rogue One, which I agree is, a, is a, just a superb film, is that previously, both in the books and the and the films and like, the rebellion had been very clean. It had been a very clean, you know, very well focused rebellion on, oh, we only shoot stormtroopers. You know, they're quite clearly bad guys. They're in bright white armor. It's really hard not to hit them. And they're all clones, so it doesn't matter, apparently. Yeah. Although I think that's a bit dodgy. Yeah, there's some very dubious aspects of that. But what, you know, the reality is that exactly as you say, that, you know, rebelling against uh, a totalitarian military fascistic dictatorship means that you have to do a fair amount of deeply unpleasant, shady stuff. And the first time that we see Cassie and Andor in, in the film of Rogue One, he just shoots a guy, just sh- randomly shoots a guy in a in, a, in an alleyway to, to ensure that Danny he Mays. escapes. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we love, he's a great actor. Kills him. <laughs> just kills him, stone cold, because... It's the only, you know, the, the pair of them can't survive and it's more important that Cassian survives than the other guy. So the other guy has to die. And also in Andor, we see rebels holding a gun against a kid's head. Yes. Don't we? It's really quite brutal. And also, I mean, with that scene where, you know, they hold the gun against the kid's head and then, you know, they all some of them escape, some of them don't. We never actually see what happens to that family. And mm. I'm not confident that when that woman who was holding the gun to the kid's head left that room, that everyone in that room was still alive. You do talk in the book about the wide and vaguely scary world of spin-off stuff. Yeah. Lots of books and comics and additional stuff. Places where even I don't go. <laughs> and how, actually, it, it, when it's looked at in those places, the Empire actually kind of evolves weirdly and isn't what you see currently in the Disney stuff where they are basically the Nazis, uh, or at least presented as basically the Nazis. I was shocked and genuinely disturbed to read that there are centrists in the Star Wars universe who collaborate with the with the Empire. They want to use the Emperor's methods, but just not the bad stuff. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? This is like an Owen Jones column. <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in the new Disney canon, they, they create uh, a new political system in the in the galactic republic or the new republic after return of the jedi and you end up with two sets of political factions you get the populists who want to um, have kind of diversified um, spread out rule done popularly by the people and you have centrists who want kind of a unifying central figure effectively kind of a hobbled emperor uh, for want of a better term both of them in their own ways are you know deeply flawed and and dubious but you end up with yeah this this kind of weird how do we rule a galaxy after we've had an emperor in the knowledge that the galaxy still needs to be run in some way shape or form but you know what form of government do we want i know you should never think about these things too hard because it is essentially entertainment but i've always found the idea of the jedi kind of worrying yeah. this idea that there's this genetic elite who are really running the show behind the democratic scenes oh and it's a religion as well so you've got this kind of theocratic secret police who pretend to be in the service of this weird version of democracy that you've described but actually they're the real power i mean in a lot of ways them versus the emperor is really a battle of two theocracies Yes. And I think if you kind of, you know, watch the, the prequel trilogy and you go into going, oh, wow, the Jedi Order and the Jedi are the good guys. You think at the end of it, are they really? There's some pretty unshady, unpleasant stuff going on. Even in take the Phantom Menace to begin with, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi arrive on um, the world called uh, Tatooine, which isn't in the Galactic Republic. And they discover that there are slaves there and there's you know, widespread slavery. And they discover Anakin Skywalker, who's like super force sensitive and could be a great Jedi. And his mother goes, oh, are you going to be able to um, 
to, to you know rescue us and and take us take us away from this awful fate and the response is didn't come here to free slaves <laughs> so i guess i'll just leave then but we'll take the yeah. kid because we'll get we'll win him in, in a gambling thing but you're his mum so i'm afraid afraid not it's like if your if your morality which the jedi order is supposedly based on stops basically at the limits of your government's interaction or at the water's edge then you don't half open yourself up for some interesting critiques of well, how good are you if you are only choosing to be good when the circumstances arise? Because, you know, maybe those two Jedi couldn't have dismantled the institution of slavery on Tatooine, you know, freed everybody. You know, that's, that seems like a reasonably big ask. And, you know, they took Anakin Skywalker out and weren't able to take his, his mum out. But they didn't try that hard. Maybe Rishi Sunai drew the correct conclusions from this. Maybe the Empire really is not quite so bad and the Jedi are not quite so great. <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, you, you, I can say an awful lot for the for the uh, kind of critique in the Jedi, but they're not actively perpetrating genocides, which is, is, the, is the Empire's way of solving problems. Although in the, in the books, the, the Jedi spend a lot of time standing on the sidelines watching genocide happen and not intervening because they don't have a government mandate. They end up being a critique of the United Nations, who watch things happen in Srebrenica or Rwanda, but because they haven't explicitly been told to go in and do anything about it, they just kind of stand and watch. Well, I also remember the uh, those kind of onion stories about the compensation packages for all the thousands of people killed on the Death Star. The janitors on the Death Star, the catering people on the Death Star, yeah. these are the ones who end up eating it in the course of the rebellion. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Just to wrap it up, I'm really enjoying the current incarnation of Star Wars. Andor yeah. is amazing. The Mandalorian is a fantastic space western, isn't it? Which is, yeah. it's essentially a man with nothing to live for, finds something to live for. These are really strong stories. They're making the cinema incarnation of Star Wars look a bit weak, aren't they? As entertainment, but like lacking in content. Yeah, it's interesting because you're seeing with Star Wars is a realisation that is maybe slightly behind what, you know, TV channels like HBO had already realised. That actually in 10 hours of television, you can do an awful lot of story building, an awful lot of storytelling that you can't do in a 90 minute film feature film in the cinema and partly that's because you get you know slightly different audiences people will go and watch a star wars film who wouldn't necessarily sit down and watch 12 episodes of andor on disney plus or or the same so you need to be able to appeal to those people as well as you know like the hardened star wars geeks in the audience but with you know shows that are going to take on multiple episodes and multiple seasons you don't have to rush things you can take your time and you know build a, a, an interesting cohesive world around it and a lot of the the people who work at Lucasfilm in what's referred to as the Lucasfilm Story Group, their job is to ensure that you end up with continuity of, of canon and storytelling, that you don't end up with things that horrendously contradict each other, which becomes easier to do when you can take your time. Build something over a 12-episode season arc and then come back in two years' time and do the next season. 
And because, you know, Lucasfilm and Disney are, you know, fabulously wealthy beyond the wildest dreams of mere mortals, they can afford to do all of this in-house with Industrial Light and Magic and, and the like. So, you know, they're probably not spending anywhere near as much money on Andor as they would do on a 90-minute feature film. So it kind of works very nicely for them as a, as a medium for storytelling where they can try things slightly differently and know that, you know, if one episode doesn't land, it's fine. There's eight more that will follow it rather than if this film doesn't land, well, then we've got a problem. Well, just to wrap up then, I mean, we've seen Star Wars conceived as reflecting the Vietnam War and yet taken by many people as to reflect the battle against the evil empire of the Soviet Union, kind of also heralded the age of the sort of symbolism in politics, the kind of Reagan-Thatcher era where everything had a simple answer, black and white, good guys and bad guys. You've described yeah. how it echoed the war on terror, the militarization, the post-Patriot Act. In a few years' time, what will we think it was reflecting now? If we take Andor as an example, Tony Gilroy and the people working on it have been very clear that they are writing things about Trump's America. And I think we'll almost certainly end up looking back on things now and imminently about the Donald Trump era. Wouldn't surprise me at all to see the fall of Kabul in there as a, you know, a, an extension of the, the war on terror. Because um, we talk at, you know, at times or elements of like the war on terror is something that's finished. When it really hasn't, it's still ongoing. Probably you, the Ukraine war, I think, seemed like, you know, Trump, Kabul and, and Ukraine seem like three very kind of useful narrative opportunities for historically or politically um, inspired storytelling. And because Star Wars has always been inspired by history and always, has always been inspired by politics, you know, from the very conception of it, it's woven intrinsically into the fabric of it. They will undoubtedly draw upon elements of that going forward. Whether or not they're as quite overt about it as Tony Gilroy has been remains to be seen. But I, I struggle to imagine a situation in five years time where we don't look back on some of the Star Wars and go, oh, yeah, no, I, I can understand what it was they were trying to say at that point. Chris Kemshaw, thanks for joining me. That was really fascinating. It's right up my street. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for having me on. Hopefully, hopefully it inspires people to either, you know, watch Star Wars or buy a book about Star Wars or, or be more Star or Wars. Or just basically watch Andor. That's what it's all about, really. Or just watch Andor. Oh, that'll, that'll, that'll be will. great. Listeners, you've been listening to The Bunker, a small ragtag group broadcasting from a remote location in a darkening galaxy. If you like the podcast, you can help us to keep going by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding app. For as little as £3 a month, you get the podcasts early and without ads. You get nice merchandise and our undying gratitude. You'll make 10 podcasters feel like 100. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Force is with us and we are with The Force. This transmission has been intercepted by the Empire on suspicion of rebel activity. I find your lack of faith disturbing. This message will self-destruct in three seconds. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomaszewicz, and with Star Wars prequel apologism from me, Alex Reese. If loving Mace Windu is wrong, I don't want to be right. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.